And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf room, high atop the legendary coach. Now, that, that, that. Oh, look, that's just going to happen, right. Gary. It'll just have to do. I've been packing for half the week. I haven't been sleeping. I'm going to Toronto. You're well, not I'm, only going to Toronto. I'm going to Dubai, the most science fictional place on Earth. Surely. It has to be. I mean, it's it's you're you're going into you're going to the setting of a of a William Gibson novel. I've never done that. Well, pretty much, yes, I know. Uh, it's in fact, lit, I mean, I know literary, but also pretty much. It is the other thing is it's like some surreal fantasy of science fiction, isn't it? It seems to me that well, Dubai is maybe one of the few cities that actually was built in the post-science fictional era. They, it was one of the few cities. It seems to me that actually might have been influenced by. Production design on Blade Runner. Who knows? Sid Mead <laughs> built that whole city. Yeah. Well, when you when you mentioned when we started this, because I didn't know we were going to, I immediately plugged Dubai into um, Wikipedia, and it kicked up this uh, photo of a play of the Dubai night skyline. Uh-huh. Uh huh. In the high rise section of uh, of Dubai, and it does. It looks like all that's missing is the little flyer cars out of um. Out of Blade Runner, it's so yeah, I'm sure, it's yeah. extraordinary, really. I mean, I remember thinking uh, the 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 spaceport in the in the remake of uh, the reboot of Star Trek when when Kirk is first going to the spaceport, which is a great Heinleinian image. Uh, but the city that he's looking at, the spaceport image that he's looking at, is Dubai again. It's, it it's, is. It's like, it is. It's a model that we have. I've looked at the previews for Cloud Atlas, which opens in the States tomorrow yep. and is already receiving mixed reviews. And it looks to me like the dystopian future in that is another version of Dubai. You bet. You bet. I will say Lucia Shepard, esteemed movie critic, not a fan of um, Cloud Atlas. I don't expect I, – I, I, to be honest, I haven't finished the novel. People I like like the novel a lot. I gather the novel was a lot more coherently structured in its six narrative lines than the movie is. Okay. Um, but at some point we should see it. We should talk more about movies on here because that would give me an excuse to go see more movies. I don't get to see movies. I get to like download stuff on the internet uh, and watch it on my iPad. And it's usually stuff like Downton Abbey because that's what the family like watching. Well, yeah, that's it's, uh, Well, one of the things there was an interesting uh, you know, piece by Cory Doctorow on why science fiction movies drive him crazy. There's not necessarily, I think, any real connection between uh, people who read a certain kind of science fiction and people who see science fiction movies. No. No, I think that's probably Although, true. Although, to be honest, I grew up, you know, spending my entire childhood thinking sooner or later I'm going to see, see a science fiction movie which has some of the same flavor of this fiction. <laughs> sooner or later. Well, to me, to me, it actually, I got that. I know, I know that for for your generation, it's not as impressive. But having grown up that way, finally seeing 2001, yeah, which, despite its relative lack of anything happening in it at all, is gorgeous. It just was the image that we had wanted to see yeah. in science done very beautifully, done with a huge amount of grace, done with 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 Strauss waltzes for scores. I mean, it was. Um, it was just wallowing, and I think probably true. Somebody to come who would come back and look at that movie today would think this is a philosophical essay disguised as a movie, and yep. and the, the the images are are antiquated. This is a Pan Am space shuttle kind of thing. Uh, but seeing that after having had your only model of science fiction movies being the creature from the Black Lagoon or this island Earth, uh, it looked terrific. Yeah. yeah. So, so how has your science fictional week been otherwise, Gary, other than this incipient tra travel that I have and which you will have next week uh, around this enormous hurricane that appears to be building? That's, um, I mean, the, the hurricane is the most science fictional things that have happened. The, the two science fictional things that are happening here are an increasingly bizarre presidential election. Yeah. And, uh, and, and and this this weather, uh, the, just, it, it, it's, it's the other thing, the other, the other way that science fiction rhetoric has influenced um, both politics and meteorology is that the way they report these things on television is with incredibly heightened drama. Now we yeah. have had people saying, for example, there's an enormous, uh, the temperature in Chicago dropped 40 degrees during yesterday, for example, and that yeah. cold, that low pressure area is moving to the east at exactly the same moment that this Hurricane Sandy is moving north and then west. 
And if the two of them collide, we'll have this apocalyptic storm. Yeah. We'll have this storm that the Sci-Fi Channel has already made movies about. Um, and the, the same thing's true of the political uh, uh, arena. You know, everything has to be dramatized to where the future of humanity depends on this absolutely tied, uncallable, neck-and-neck, last-minute election, which probably isn't that way at all, but again, it's, 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 we're, we're presenting this as a, you know, as a pivotal moment in history. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I'm, my science fictional week has had very little to do with science fiction, but a lot to do with the news. Well, that's only partly true, of course, Gary. You, you, you digress. You, you, you dissemble. Because, of course, during the week, you wrote your column for Locus, didn't you? Yes, I did. That's true. Which, because I am a good employee, I can tell you um, people, and I say this because I'm going to have to apply for a job fairly soon, and I want everybody to know that I am a good and reliable employee, and you could engage me at any point if you needed to. Um, I edited, edited it right away and got it back to Oakland so that it can go into the next issue, and that's where you review the uh, two new Ursula K. Le Guin collections from Small Beer, uh, the Elizabeth Hand collection from Small Beer, the guest of honor, one of the guests of honor at this year's World Fantasy Convention, we're going to next week, and Adam Roberts' new novel, Jack Glass. Which is coming out in the United States next April, but appeared in the UK last July, I believe, yeah. which is kind of an odd distribution. The, 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 the two, the, well, the three short story collections, all from Small Beer Press, um, have made me think, uh, having read a couple of recent novels, and this is this is blatantly putting in a plug for a plug for for small beer. Mm. Uh, they're terrific. Of course. Uh, Le Guin selected her own stories. Um, the um, the Liz Hand uh, selection is, of course, terrific. Everything since she's but but I've gotten to the point now where small beer has almost convinced me, uh, in a way that I haven't been convinced for many many years that whatever they publish is worth looking at. Well, because of course you've read some other stuff, haven't you? I've, I've been reading a lot. Well, the uh, wasn't the Kids Johnson a small beer book? The Kids Jens Johnson is a, is a small beer book. Uh, the uh, Nancy Cress collection that came out a little bit earlier this year is a small beer book. And of course, you would have you're also one of those people who've read the advanced copy of A Stranger in a Laundria by Sophia Samatar, which is also a small press book. Mm-hmm. So they have a very good, uh, a very good track record with first novels. They have a very good track record, certainly with short story collections and anthologies. Not that other places haven't haven't develop their own sort of niches in these. I mean, we look to Tachyon for Peter Beagle books, for example. Yeah. Um, and um, we still uh, expect uh, to see interesting first novels from Nightshade. Uh, but Small Beer, it seems to me, has moved itself up a notch in the last couple of years. Uh, oh, yeah. It seems to me that the, the selected stories of Ursula K. Le Guin is something that... It's, it's not the sort of book, I suspect, which Le Guin had to shop around. I would tend to agree with you. I would be taken aback if she had had any difficulty finding a home for it. Um, I mean, I've got theories as to why it's happening, none of which are particularly nefarious or strange, but I'm delighted that it is. It's one of those things. And I, I guess I'm also interested, having read your book, I mean, I, I guess we should, we should say, without spoiling your review, because everybody needs to go off and subscribe to Locus and, and buy it, but um, the interesting thing about it is it's not the best of Ursula Guin at all, is it? It's not, not marketed that way. It's not discussed that way um this is the um how would i put it this, this is her selecting her own uh story you know, well her preferred stories are the ones she's interested in presenting in in, in a, a ongoing collection as opposed to all of the other collections which of course are all still in print i think it's i i, I think it's fascinating i because it made me think about the difference between the kinds of retrospective collections you get i mean one of the books that's coming out next year that will be a major book is um, uh, Kit Reed's, uh, uh, I think it's called Selected Stories. Again, it's mm -hmm. not complete stories. It's something very much like Le Guin's book, where she has looked at stories that um, she wants to represent her career and her various modes of writing. But she wouldn't, I don't think she's calling that the best of Kit Reed. No. Le Guin is not calling it the best of Ursula Le Guin. I think that by and large, on the other hand, Gene Wolfe's book was called The Best of Gene Wolfe, but I'd be willing to bet that they, that, that started with the title. Uh, and that's that's not a title that Gene himself thought of. Look, I wouldn't be at all surprised if that were the case, if he had been encouraged. So, you know, look, I, I think people should, well, hang on, I don't want to, I was going to say go off and order these books and check them out, or anything from Small Beer. But um, I am intrigued because 
weirdly, and this is just tells you about the kind of person I am and the kind of things that I do, they have left the door wide open to still doing a Best of Le Guin. Yes, they have. Because, um, I mean, all but, the famous stories are, aren't there, really, are they? Or very, well, a whole bunch of them aren't there. The, the, the two volumes uh, are interesting, and I think it's going to be uh, an eye-opener for uh, a number of people who have read Le Guin only through science fiction and fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she she made a rule up front that she was she was not going to include novellas because uh, well you've had the same problem any anthologist has this problem how many short stories do you have to knock out to put in one novella sure of course so vaster than empires is more slow is not there uh, the word for world is forest is not there and so forth well, that, that, so that's just a strategic decision yeah then there's a decision involving um, well she doesn't want to just uh, do a lot of spinoffs of um, Hainish stories and Earthsea, but there are some. The main thing I think is going to surprise people is that the first volume is almost entirely not is entirely non science fiction and almost entirely non fantasy. Yeah, the kind of stories which uh, which which she published in the New Yorker, where she was virtually I, I didn't realize this until I added it up, but she yeah. was virtually a regular for the entire decade of the 1980s. I have to say I'm eagerly hoping that these will be in at, at the at uh, World Fantasy, so I can pick up copies. I hope they will be. That'll be uh, terrific to, uh, to to see because it's um, it's an important collection. There's no doubt about it. But I think if somebody wanted uh, an overview of well, the second volume could do that. But if somebody were teaching a class and you wanted to represent Le Guin's uh, most famous science fiction stories, mm-hmm. um, then I don't think either one of these volumes would be that. Yeah. And yet. And yet there are stories that I'd not read before that I thought were terrific, and some of which were not science fiction. Uh, it's, the, 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 the question that it resembles most to me is probably M. John Harrison's Things That Never Happened. Okay. Which is a collection of stories that he loved, uh, that he had put together, some of which were fantastic, some of which were science fiction, and some really mystery. Yep. Uh, I thought that was a collection as well. Fantastic correction. So tell me, if <laughs> we haven't done this in a long time, if you're t- uh, giving people uh, their introduction to Le Guin, where would you point them now? Well, okay, this is a problem that comes up with anybody who teaches a science fiction course. Uh, if I wanted to introduce people to Le Guin, I would probably have them read The Dispossessed. Okay. I think The Dispossessed has a, a substantial hard science fiction element in it. It, it has... It has plenty of gender and power relations in it, although probably not as schematically laid out as they are in the left hand of darkness. Um, and it deals with her constant rethinking of, of social structures and family structures and the whole ambiguous dystopia, ambiguous utopia thing. Uh, it was kind of defined by that novel. And, and, and that's probably a personal favorite of mine. Yeah. Uh, short fiction, what would you, as an anthologist, what short fiction would okay. you send I'm going to well, I'm going to cheat a little bit, so I mean, you, but you knew I'd do that. I guess what I'd say is, first of all, I would recommend my, my approach would be to recommend three books from Le Guin, and they're quite predictable, and I think there's some merit in them being predictable. I agree about the Dispossessed. I would also recommend A Wizard of Earthsea, and I'd recommend I think The Wind's Twelve Quarters, which has always been a favourite collection of mine and contains an amazing selection of her best genre stories actually it is that's a terrific collection and i had not thought about earlier short story anthologies so uh, i think that's that, what i've done because because I mean, that has like the rule of names in it it has nine lives in it, it has vaster than empires and more slow the ones who walk away from Omalos, you know the kind of stuff you'd like to show people mm-hmm. to give you a sense of, of, of her work you know so yes I'm pretty sure, and it seems to me from what she said in the introduction uh, to the volume, that the most widely taught work of hers anywhere is probably the ones who walk away from Omelus. Yeah. Because it's the kind of thing that just, you know, drives students nuts. They have to make, every, I'm sure everybody in the world who teaches this, in high school or in mm-hmm. college, yeah. uh, asks the students, would you walk away from Omelus? What would you do in this situation? Yeah. And then, of course, the students get at each other's throats, and you've got a discussion going which is more valuable than anything else that can happen for a teacher. Yeah. Yes. 
No, this is me I'm... just hitting a stone wall. I'm tired, Gary. <laughs> this is a terrible I time know. podcast. I'm so. I'd like to apologize to the four or five hundred people who regularly listen and anybody else who picks this up. And I'll, I'll apologize in advance to my wife, Marianne, when she listens to it in a month or so and catches up. Uh, because really, I should be more more focused and more away. Well, we, we we were going to be focused. We were going to we were going to talk about uh, uh, Mark Kelly's announcement that he's doing another yeah. local yes, yes. favorite poll, which apparently, if I'm not mistaken, has not been done in something like twelve or thirteen years now. That would be about right. And Locus has a, an interesting reach; they can, they can get to an awful lot of different people uh, to get. I, I guess I mean you'd have to say it's it's a, a middle of genre kind of. Assessment of the of all time, you know. Um, I think it is. I mean, I think the earlier polls were, if I'm not mistaken, simply locus subscribers, um, mm-hmm. and later branched out a bit. But what strikes me is the, the question, that obviously, is in everyone's mind: is from the perspective of 2012 or 2013 or whenever this happens, are these earlier judgments from um, the? Let me see, from 1998, 1986. 1998, 1987, and 1975, are they going to hold up? Yeah. Well, I I think... Well, the one consistent winner, it seems to me, in all these previous polls is Dune. Yeah. And would people still today name Dune as the most important or the best science fiction novel of all time? I think a lot. Well, okay, remember that the questions that were asked in the polls were specific, not slanted, but specific. And what I mean by that is they're all based on a 20-year lag period, you know, best before X. So, like, in uh, 1998, it was everything before, and and, and anything before 1990. Um, In 1987, it was all time. Uh, in 1977, I think it was just yeah, all, it was all time as well. Now, this, with this new poll that Mark has proposed, I think he's going to put a, a, a cut off. I'm not sure what the exact year is, but whether it'll be 2000 or something like that. Uh-huh. Uh, and actually, there's something nice and sort of resonant about the idea of making it sort of. Uh, now he's talking about doing two polls, huh? I'm just looking at the thing. He's saying that they'll do a poll. One will be uh-huh. the best of the 20th century. And one will be 2001 to 2010. Now that's really interesting because that's the first time that we've polled that recently. You know, in, in, in the other, that, that historically speaking, recently, you know, covering a, a recent period. And mm-hmm. it's because I suspect the book that'll come out as an all-time uh, best SF novel won't be June this time. And just because everybody else isn't looking at this this poll that we're looking at, which is uh, you can get the, see the results online in 1975 and in 1987, and in 1998, June came in number one as the greatest science fiction novel of all time. There was there was sort of wriggling around in the background, moving stuff around, but that was the greatest science fiction novel of all time. Right. I wonder if it won't be Neuromancer. Really? Yep. Neuromancer, for example, in 1998, came out 15th. number 15th. Yeah, 15th. Uh, I would have thought there was a good chance, since we'd just been talking about Le Guin, that the left hand of darkness might have. It was number three uh, yeah. in uh, 1998, and I think that I think that might move up as well. Neuromancer. Well, that, that was, it went down, dude. It was it was number two in 1987. Ah, you're right. And it was number three in 1975, when it was only six years old. So I think one of the reasons, obviously, that, uh, that all these polls, including the original Science Fiction Hall of Fame poll, has a cutoff point some years before the year of the poll is yep. to try to avoid you know, immediate enthusiasms. Yeah. And, and I, I think Mark's going to do short fiction, and it'll be interesting to see how that gets revisited, because there was a short fiction poll in 99 as well, when Jeff DS5 came out as the all-time best, well, all-time most favorite short story, Flowers for Algernon by Daniel Keyes, the best novelette. Vintage Season by C.L. Moore and Henry Cutner, best novella. Dangerous mm. Visions by Ellison, the best anthology. And uh, Ellison, the best short fiction writer. And I would be curious to know whether that would hold true if that was repolled. I would only pick maybe one of those four uh, in those positions, personally. So, you know. 
I, I would tend to agree. I, I, Ellison is not going to show up as prominently as he has in the past. I mean, to some extent, if you want to talk about um, his, his, his reputation, I think, is solid in, in a kind of literary history sense. Yeah. I, his, his, his arc of popularity isn't what it, what it was for a long time. Um, I think the same thing's true with Bradbury, with, not with Bradbury, but with Asimov, who came up as one of the all-time short fiction writers. Um, and... I think that's a lot of affection for the iRobot stories. Yes, and I think it, I forget what year he died in, but it wouldn't have been long. I don't it know. If, long, yeah, long but I mean, the top three. Yeah. They're saying the top three all-time short fiction writers were Ellison, Ray Bradbury, and Isaac Asimov. And I wouldn't expect that to hold true. I don't think so. No. Uh, similarly, I think the top ten, the, the most recent poll, the top ten science fiction novels of all time, starting at number ten, Gary, and counting up, were Hyperion by Dan Simmons. Ender's mm-hmm. Game by Scott Card, Childhood at Zen by Arthur C. Clarke, Canticle for Leibowitz by Walter Miller, Stars My Destination by Alfred Bester, Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein, Foundation Trilogy by Asimov, Left Hand of Darkness by Le Guin, Moon is Harsh Mistress by Heinlein, and Dune by Herbert. I would expect to see some movement in that. I would be surprised if those remain the top ten books. I would be very surprised with that, because the top one, two, three, four... Uh, top three, at least, are all 1960s books. Yeah. So, to some extent, in these polls, the 70s and 80s have practically disappeared. Yeah. Um, uh, some people, you're right. Neuromancer on that particular poll in 1998 yeah. down to number 14. Philip K. Dick shows up where? Down the Man in the High Castle at number 18. And I think we'd agree. We have agreed in the past that he is the most important science fiction writer of the 20th century. There's a very good argument to be made for that. And I think in terms of his long term broad-based cultural influence and there's a lot of evidence to support that probably now the most interesting thing that i will wait for is to see if women feature more prominently on the list gary because if you look at that the say the sf novel before 1990 poll conducted in 1998 of mm. the in fact far more than 52 books despite it list because it allows for all kinds of ties and oddness that I've never been entirely sure about. I mean, I know you can't, they can't split the votes at times. But I think it amounts to, let me see, how many titles? Of the 53 books that made the top, the, that, that poll, there are three women writers on the list. Three, Gary. There's Cherry, C.J. Cherry, Mary Shelley, and... Le Guin. And Le Guin, of course. Um, and Mary Shelley, interestingly enough, ends up almost at the bottom of the list at number yep. 48. I think there's, yep. a, there's a really reasonable argument that Frankenstein is, is a more important science fiction novel than that. This may have been too early for Connie Willis to have had any impact. It may have been too early for people to have realized the impact that Joanna Russ had. Or Lo- even um, Lois Bourgeois. I mean, Lois Bourgeois, I would expect to show up on the phone. Yeah. Absolutely, and others. I mean, I don't want to sort of reduce it down to anybody, uh, any one particular person, and say, oh, well, she or he, you know. That kind of thing, but certainly there's, there's an array of people I would expect. And given it's a popular vote, I would expect to see women. Fe- I mean, particularly based on the, the, the discussion in our field over the last um, oh ten years, five years, I would expect to see women feature much more prominently on the poll. Really would. I would expect uh, that, not knowing anything about the demographics of the earlier polls, that there will be a, a lot more diverse voting base uh, this year than there had been in those earlier yeah. years. Of- and, and it seems you know, difficult to believe there were only seven women in the top 35 fantasy novels list. That surprised me a lot, uh, simply because it, it, it seems to me like so many people, like Pat, Patricia McKillop, for example, yeah. have just you know, written classic after classic. Yeah. Madeline Lingle shows up there. Um, the first woman going down the fantasy novel, again, this is, what, the 1998 yep. list of best fantasy novels. Of course, Lord of the Rings yep. and The Hobbit. Yes. Uh, and then we get down to Earthsea uh, at number four, which doesn't surprise me. Although it might rank a little bit higher than that now. Yep. Um, and after that, we have to go down to Anne McCaffrey's Dragonflight, which she wouldn't even want to have had, want to have had classified as a fantasy novel. Well, that's true, but that, you, you, you don't get to sort of that's true. You don't get make to that choice. And I don't know if Mark's going to do an all-time author list. That'll be interesting because, again, uh, they published a top 26 in 1977, which is a, you know, 35 years ago. Uh, yeah. And you'd expect significant change in that list. And, again, there are only a couple of women on the list then. Um, so you, you, you'd expect that to change, I would think. 
Because Le Guin and, and Wilhelm show up on that list. Yeah, that's that's rather astonishing. Uh, and there's there's books I expect to fall off. I mean, uh, looking if you go back to say the the er, the first the 1975 all-time novel poll. It's interesting to ask yourself, what reputations have lapsed enough that they probably won't show up? I mean, down towards the bottom of the poll, Rite of Passage by Alexi Panshin's there, So's The Witches of Carre by James Smith, Mirror of, of Observers by Pangborn, mm-hmm. which are all good books. I'm not saying they're not good books. But will they retain the same regard that will get them popularly onto a, onto a, uh, a list like this? Well, I think another issue that's changed in the last 30-some years is the availability of books like this. I mean, to some extent, um, uh, I don't know when the actual shift occurred, but to some extent, for a good portion of the last 50 years, you could pr- pretty much find paperback editions of most of the well-known science fiction classics. I don't think uh, that... Uh, unless you're going out and looking for it, and you can, of course, find it on ABE or on some used bookstores, but unless you go out and look for it, you're not going to encounter the works of Edgar Pangborn anywhere anymore. Yeah. Uh, you're not likely to run across anything by Alexei Panshin or James Schmitz or, um, or to be honest, a, a, a good amount of uh, Arthur C. Clarke is, is, is not widely available anymore. This is true, though, though at this point I will now insert a plug into the podcast, Gary. I know we're oh. completely on commercial, and we never ever do this, uh, but our, well, my, our old friend uh, Michael Walsh, proprietor mm-hmm. of Old Earth Books, does indeed feature books by Edgar Pang- Pangborn on his list, and you can buy, I think, Davy uh, and West of the Sun uh, fr- from him, and Mirror for Observers still. So if you're interested in checking out these classic old Edgar Pangborn books, you still can. I mentioned that when I was doing the Library of America thing, the Mirror for Observers is certainly one of the novels that could have been included in that. He yeah. did remind me that he has those in print and, and, and Old Earth books, and indeed. My point is still that you are not going to walk into a Barnes no. & Noble, you can find one anymore, and find an Edgar Pangborn novel. <laughs> no, no. Nor are you going to frankly go onto Amazon.com and find a Kindle edition. Right, exactly. And, 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 and it's not like the Amazon's um, algorithm is going to say, people who liked this book, uh, people who liked Hanu Rai and Yemi, also liked Edgar Pangborn. <laughs> well, can I just take that back? You can indeed get West of the Sun. In fact, I'd like to send a shout-out to a friend of the pop- another friend of the podcast, Gary. Okay. Mr. Malcolm Edwards of Golan's deserves a, a shout-out from the podcast for the work that they've been doing with SF Gateway. And I would have to point out that, in fact, no fewer than six Pangborn titles are available uh, from um, from uh, online as a result. So you can get Davy, The Company of Glory, Mirror for Observers, Judgment of Eve, and Still I Persist in Wondering, all, all on your Kindle in, in merest moments. So, yeah, you know, it's... It's absolutely true, but my point was that how do you find out that you want those books? Uh, well, okay, you, uh, you, you, uh, I know what you do, Gary. I have a solution to the problem. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, you need to listen to the Coot Street podcast. <laughs> oh, of course, yes. We have, we have now, we have done our Edgar Pang. But, but it's, it's absolutely We're, we're reduced to plugging ourselves, Gary. We, oh, I know. We're, we're this is this has to do with the whole de- debate about e-readers. It has to do with uh, what I think uh, Malcolm Edwards has done is, is absolutely wonderful. I think having those books available uh, for most of the world or for some chunk of the world because the rights you know vary from <laughs> is absolutely wonderful. But the experience, and I'm sounding like an old codger, I realize uh, the, the experience I had of going into a bookstore, going into a drugstore, and mm-hmm. finding that looked interesting. Uh, and taking it home and realizing this is actually how I found Lovecraft yep. on, on paperback. Uh, that is a rare experience. That is not how people encounter books anymore. In order to, you, you don't stumble across um, Edgar Pangborn or James H. Schmitz or Mark Clifton. Let's give the guy another shout out. You, you, <laughs> you don't stumble across those. You have to look for them. You have to you know do. what you're you doing. You do. Science fiction. And what I'm saying is that that system of reading, that new system of reading, is going to inevitably impact the kinds of um, novels that people choose to vote on in, in Mark's new poll. 
Indeed, it will, I think. I, uh, I'm looking back at the... Res the Okay, 2010 is the most recent stuff that you can go for uh, in on, on the poll. So I'm curious as to what people will pick from the last few years as well. I mean, it, it's interesting. These polls have all kinds of maybe it's nerd appeal, Gary. We have to allow those. They just be nerd appeal. Uh, but mm -hmm. which of the more recent works will actually show up? You know. Uh, I would expect Neil Gaiman to be prominent in the 2000 to 2010 period, wouldn't you? Well, certainly in the fantasy category, yes. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, I'm trying to... Ted Chang. I'd expect Ted, Ted, Ted Chang to show up. I think Ted Chang will show up in, in terms of short fiction. I think Connie Willis will be very prominent during this period. Um, I suspect uh, that... Well, you have to cut it off before 2010. It's interesting Ten. because... Yeah. That, that means that some people, I mean, the immediate, the, the buzz for this year, the short story collection everybody's talking about, of course, is, is the Keats Johnson collection at the mouth of the River of Bees. I doubt if she would make the list on the basis of the novel she published. No, uh, I would be surprised. In, in the 1990s, in 2000. Um, so who else have we got? Would Mary Rickert make the list? No, I don't think so. I think she would deserve to, but I don't think she will. And I think we have to be really careful. To, uh, I know all our listeners are absolutely on top of this kind of a, a caveat. But this isn't about worthy. This is about likely. And well, it, that's the other question, yeah. Um, who's likely to get voted on? Yeah. Um, I think Bruce Jolde... mm -hmm. Charles Strauss. Ian McDonald. Ian Banks. Kelly Link. Uh, Kelly Link, I think, will certainly make the list in... Um, I'm trying. I think Bujold will inevitably be on the list. Yep. Um, I'm. I guess I'm, I'm trying to think of Ken Stanley Robinson's The Mars Trilogy, which was too late for these earlier lists, yep. and maybe too late for this. But that's certainly, if, if people were to look at classics, at least of the second half of the 20th century, the Mars uh, series of Stan Robinson has to be part of that. Uh, would he get on the list on the basis of Galileo's Dream? Um, I don't know. Um, 2312, but that's not eligible. Not eligible. I mean, uh, Mark's assessing five categories in two periods. So, in fact, some of the stuff that we're talking about will prove to be irrelevant because we didn't actually read the document very carefully. So there'll be the two poles, 20th century, 21st century, SF novel, fantasy novel, novella, novelette, and short story. And so it's going to be quite fascinating. Quite fascinating, Gary. It, it's it's going to be very interesting because the the, in, the, the what happens with this uh, is that there there are really three kinds of votes you could look at with this. Yep. You could you could, you could do a poll uh, as the ancient polls did back in the seventies, which are only locust readers, which means you have people who have a certain professional interest in science fiction, or at least it's a very narrowly focused group. Um, I think that the poll that Mark is doing now is going to be a larger version of that group, but it's still going to be people that are interested in the kinds of things that uh, that we're interested in the magazine is so if you do a if you do a general public poll if you do a uh, people's choice award sort of thing which the modern library did a few years ago then you're dealing with an interesting popularity contest which may or may not speak to the interests of those of us who are more or less specially interested in the field if that makes yeah. sense yeah no I understand I do understand I mean, the modern mean. library the three the three major writers of the 20th century according to that poll were um, L. Ron Hubbard um, Ayn Rand and Charles Dillant of all people and you can see what I, li I like Charles Dillant well, Charles Dillant is fine I actually like Charles Dillant quite a bit better than I like Ayn Rand <laughs> um, I'm not sure how compliments how compliments like going to feel, but you know. But the fact is that uh, did, did you you know when, when you when you get a large public poll like that for some reason people believe it's a political action and organize their own votes around certain things. So you, to yeah. some extent you realize that that's not necessarily a reflection. Apart from that, apart from that, you're you're dealing with the most popular science fiction novels, and the most popular science fiction novel, arguably, of the last 30 or 40 years, maybe Ender's Game. Yeah. No, no, oh, absolutely, yes. Um, in fact, that's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it was number nine in 1990, 1998. Uh -huh. Will it be higher? Will it be in the top couple? 
or will the, the you know those people who are within the field and maybe most likely to actually vote will there perhaps antipathy towards some of his politics and uh, the discussions that have been discussed uh, slant that that's where it becomes interesting to try to anticipate poll results the broader the base of the poll uh, the more people that participate in the poll connected or unconnected to Lovis in the science fiction field the broader the base the more likely Ender's Game is to end up number one or two sure um, and the fact that may, there may be people in the field who have more or less soured on Orson Scott Card. I don't think there are enough people who would uh, who, who would ignore the book uh, on the basis of his later works. But the odd thing about Ender's Game is it, it is an important book. It's sure, of course it is. A lot of attention to a lot of issues, and um, his later career got interestingly strange. Hmm. But by and large, I think that uh, that probably is going to bob fairly high up in the list if there are a lot of participants in the voting. Okay, let me ask you a poll nerd question. What do you think about this uh, amalgamating books in series into one lot and then piling all the, all the votes in a, in a pile and saying, well, that's how that ended up? So that you get, for example, say, the Amber Chronicles as a nine-book set show up you know, quite highly when maybe the individual books wouldn't. I don't think you can solve that problem at all. I mean, it's uh, I, I understand exactly... You're, the, the Amber Chronicles are a nine-book series, of which the last three or four weren't very good. Yeah. Um, but does that mean you take one book at a time? The Narnia series, uh, can you really separate out the books of that? You certainly can't separate out the books of The Lord of the Rings, which is arguably one three-volume novel. On the, other, on the other hand, that's how they were published. Mm -hmm. You know, how, how, well, I'm looking at the fantasy novel before 1990 list, and Lord of the Rings, which of course is three novels, publishes one novel because it is actually a single narrative. Uh -huh. The Book of the New Sun, which is somewhere between, was it five and a hundred books, depending on how you look at it? Well, the Book of the New Sun was four books, but there's a 12 or 13 volume series. Yeah, I know, I know I'm being glib. The Gormenghast series, which is... Three books. Well, so three, well books and three and a bit. And even three. the last one's a bit more of a bit than a three. You got... Uh, you've got the first Chronicles of Tom Thomas Covenant, which is a similar issue to The Lord of the Rings, but was never really you know, published in any meaningful way as a single work. I mean, there was an omnibus, but it was you know, it was a series of novels. You've got the Belgariad listed at number 12, which is five five novels. Continuous nar narrative, sure, but, you know, really? Is it one book? The Dying Earth series by Vance, which is a batch of novels and short stories. Yeah, that seems to me to me a little bit more problematical because there was no intent of a continuous narrative in those. Um, how about something like, looking down the list, the Fionavar Tapestry, which I believe is a typo on the list, Gary, because it listed as, as the Fionavar Tapestry, when I think it's the Fionavar Tapestry. It is supposed to be the Fionavar Tapestry, yeah. But that's a, that's a trilogy, that they are related, but, you know. Or, weirdly, uh, the, the Discworld series, 26 novels, uh, many of which stand completely alone, and, uh, you know, a very odd inclusion that way, or the Elric series, same 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 thing. Yeah, the Elric series is a massive amount of novels and short stories, and and. and or the fact for the Grey Master series. Yeah, exactly. I would disallow. That. I would I, I would have to think hard about the Foundation trilogy, frankly. Well, I've always had a problem with the Foundation trilogy. I mean, it's it's not it's it, there's not a novel in the Foundation trilogy. Yeah, it, it's I a mean, set of short story collections, right? It's 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 a collection of stories and novellas uh, linked together. Yeah, um, I think uh, somewhere in the SF novel list is probably, if I'm not mistaken, probably somewhere down there is Clifford Simak City. Yeah, which similarly uh, is not. Yeah, a it novel. is. It's it's yeah. it's not a novel. Uh, it's a great book, but it's not a novel. Oh, it absolutely is. Uh, but the um, let's see, did the Martian Chronicles show up in the novel list? Probably, I hope not. <laughs> Even because it's not a novel, yes, you don't it. Ah, there in, you go. in the 1998 poll, Martian Chronicles showed up as a number 23 on the best novel list. Well, so, that's just silly. Um, but it, it reflects a problem in the field. And the problem in the field is that there are these, uh, and you and I have talked about this before, there should be a category maybe called best fix-ups or yes. best series or something. Because Yeah, but we've right. also talked about the fact that as soon as you do that, then... You know, best flat copy, um, best, well, yeah. best sketch by an artist on the weekend in, 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 in the margins of a book. I mean, it, it gets a little bit 
You get them with a thousand million categories, which seems like a bit much. But the problem is you end up then with something like the Martian Chronicles or City or the Foundation Trilogy or iRobot, more or less in limbo. They're not novels. Uh, they are story collections, but it's interesting enough that um, none of these polls, as far as I know, have had story collections, have they? Uh, no, I don't think. No, no, I don't think they have, no. So, uh, so, so you, end up, you end up, for example, having to represent, let's say, the Martian Chronicles with the Million Year Picnic, which shows up on a lot of best short story polls. But the Million Year Picnic is really almost a meaningless story unless you read it in the context of the Martian Chronicles. True. I agree. I agree. Uh, well, so tell me, what do you hope will, will, will feature unexpectedly well on the poll? Um, I am hoping, the thing that strikes me, and this is because I've, you and I have been maybe a little bit obsessed by it, uh, I'm, I'm just astonished that uh, Joanna Russ has not appeared more prominently. I, I think the, the, the more we get distance on her work, the more we realize she was one of the major, major figures yep. um, the last 50 years. Uh, so I expect to, I would like to see her there. I would like to see uh, Stan Robinson there. I would like to see Ted Chang. I would like to see uh, M. Rickert, but you're right, she's probably not going to be. I would like to see Kelly Link. Mm -hmm. Jeff Ford, no. another problem. Jeff Ford has written uh, a, a lot of different kinds of works, some terrific short stories, some mm -hmm. very good story collections, and a couple of novels which are marginally genre fantasy and marginally mystery and marginally something else. Uh, I would like to see M. John Harrison uh, more prominently on this poll. Um, what about you? Tiptree. I'd like to see Tiptree show up. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I don't believe uh, any of her work shows up on any of the polls. Uh, I'd like to... I mean, first, okay, the one I'd like to see that will not is I'd like to see Waldrop make it. I'd like to see Lucia Shepard make it. Um... There's a uh, there's a batch of people whose work over the time. Gwyneth Jones deserves to be in these polls, frankly, uh, having been around for a long period of time. So, so there's a whole batch of stuff, yeah. In the fantasy novel, I suspect Liz Han Elizabeth Hand should be there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it'll be interesting to see who emerges. Again, are we going to be getting a lot of votes for Stephanie Meyer uh, or mm. Anne Rice? Um, well, I, if you do, you do. I mean, it's a popularity poll, Gary. You can't really worry about that too much. Well, I mean, you, and, and you have to accept what people what people's judgments are on this sort of thing because yeah. one of the issues has come up occasionally. It comes up a lot with the World Fantasy Awards. It comes up more directly with the Shirley Jackson Awards. Is you can you, you can't really say a novel is not a fantasy novel because it's also a horror novel. That's true. I mean, a vampire novel is essentially a fantasy novel, and. Yeah. Uh, we can pretend that we're defining fantasy in some way that excludes that sort of thing, but yeah. it's, it's not going to hold up. No. Uh, so we might end up with, um, you're certainly right, we will end up seeing American Gods will be on this new ballot, probably in Nancy Boys. Yeah. Um, and what else is likely to appear on it just on the basis of its popularity? Oh, I can think of something that you might have omitted. Hmm. J.K. Rowling, I would expect to show up. I think J.K. Rowling would be there. I would. Uh, I mean, okay. I'd expect J.K. Rowling to show, show up there. I'd expect Suzanne Collins to show up there. I'd expect, um, uh, as you say, probably Stephanie Meyer will show up there. Because, I mean, admittedly, the audience that are aware of the existence of Locus is a particular one, and this is reflecting all of the people who will go to the Locus website to, to, to vote equally. It will reflect the views of subscribers and non-subscribers alike, but only people who actually go to the website to vote. But nonetheless, I mean, you, you, I think we all allow the fact that when, when the poll is, is compiled, it's going to take. Yeah, it will. It may be that it will be topped by the Hunger Games. You know, which would be, uh, and that, that's fine. You know, that, that, right. it, it, because here's the thing as well. And I think you, well, no, I think you would agree with me, but I don't know. If you want to put together a critical all-time uh, list, then you put together a critical all-time list. If you do a popularity poll, you do a popularity poll. Well, what happens with popularity polls is two things. One, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's fascinating data that you come out with. Yeah. Uh, but the two things that can happen are, one, that you, there, are, there are writers that have constituencies, whether they're organized or not. It's interesting. Uh, I mean, this, the, the, the L. Ron Hubbard is going to show up there yeah. because they will find the poll and they will do that. Uh, I think Charles DeLint has a following like that. Interestingly, I'm not sure that J.K. Rowling has that kind of constituency. She's enormously popular 
But I don't think that anybody feels the need to promote her work the way they might want to passionately promote the work of Ayn Rand, for example. You, you um, may be right. So that's, that's one thing. The second thing you get is a series of votes, a fair number of votes, and Charles used to complain about this all the time, by people who had read nothing on the list except their one favorite book. That happens. It happens. And you do have Neil Gaiman readers who don't read anything but Neil Gaiman, despite yeah. Neil's heroic efforts to get them to read other things. It's true. You, All you can do is allow for it, though. Yeah, you have to allow for it, and you have to realize that that's part of the fact, uh, part of what factors these sorts of things in. I mean, I suspect that uh, you know, if we do a poll, uh, if, if the series stands up as well as it has, that people like Justin Cronin are going to end up uh, as the top fantasy novelists of, of a poll done in 2020 or 2025. Yeah, he may, he may do. We shall see. But it will be interesting. The, the poll will be done. Please go to locusmag.com and be sure to express your opinion uh, so that you, ha you, you, know, you have a say. And then you can come back and you know, we can all discuss what, what makes the, the final poll. Probably when it's published. I'm, I don't know when Mark's, Mark's planning to publish the results, but uh, later in the year or early in the morning. Oh, sorry, early in New Year, maybe. Right. We should uh, mention that the uh, poll is um, it's not available right now. No, no. That it will it will be posted online, and if, if we remember to, we will let you mention when you can go and vote. We will be doing lots and lots of podcasting next week, so who knows what? I'm sure we we'll get a chance to mention it then, and hopefully everybody will be involved, which will be cool. I would think so. Are we are we are we at the end of our time already? I think well, I think we might be, Gary, because there's lots of noise in the background that I can tell. You just heard a door open and close. We're so, I feel like we're you know, we're we're stretching. We're running on fumes this week, or I am. So I thought we might wind up about ten minutes early. Well, what do you say? Uh, that sounds like fine to me. I mean, next week we will be uh, in in Toronto talking to people far more entertaining than we are. Yep, for a podcaster palooza. Podcaster palooza from uh, from from Toronto. Do we dare name the people who we're hoping to record with, or should we leave that as a secret? Oh, I think we should leave that as a surprise. We can uh, is, 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 is that because it may not happen, and then we'll look ridiculous? Just as a as a, as a last um, putting you on the spot thing, do you have any predictions for the World Fantasy Awards? Oh Lord, I don't even remember what's up. <laughs> <laughs> that, thanks for that, Gary. You completely <laughs> bloody well. Ah, do I have any predictions? I will have in about uh, four uh, about forty seconds when I pull it up. I will say that I will be sitting there in the, in the um, in the room when that when they're announced. Because hey, that's that's how we roll, isn't it, Gary? And uh, yeah. I, I am looking forward to seeing who the the, um, the, the judges have, have have selected as their recipients. I'm sure they'll be fabulously uh, worthy, if not my first choice. Okay, who do I think is going to win this coming week? I think. Oh, let's start at the what, what we'll now call the bottom of the ballot, Gary. Uh huh. Um, myself. Let me think. At the bottom of the ballot, I. Wonder, I wonder, I wonder. I think Clark's World will win for best non-professional. Okay. I think Jeff Vandermeer and S.J. Chambers may pick it up for the for the steampunk Bible. Uh, though actually, no, actually, I take that back. I think the, the Shizine Publications team may win. I think they could they might. be. I think they might. Um, and I would be very comfortable with that. Um. I would have quibble. I, I would be very happy to see Vandermeer and Chambers win, and I've got quibbles about the others, based on my own knowledge. So anyway, for artist, geez, are we going to? This is this is will win, right? As opposed to anything else. Yeah, will win. Not who you want to win. Uh, maybe maybe John maybe John Coulthard might win. I'd love to see Kathleen Jennings win because she's a friend and she works for me on Eclipse. But uh, I'd love to see her win. For collection, I think it will be oh goodness gracious me, maybe more in McHugh's After the Apocalypse. I would think so. That's what I was going. Not because I think any of the, the collection category is actually remarkably strong, as is the art category. But I think that's what it'll be. I think anthology will go to Anne and Jeff Vandermeer for the weird. I think they managed to put together an anthology which actually has all of the weird in it. It's three quarters of a million words long. And so you almost have to give them the award. It's an amazing uh, piece of editing. I would be, yeah, that would be my pick there. For short story, I'm going to go for the Cartographer Wasps and the Anarchist Leagues, Gary. I'm not surprised. That seems to be sweet. By Elie for novella, 
Ooh, this is interesting. I'm going to declare a conflict of interest, if I can. Okay. I have been asked by KJ Parker to accept the World Fantasy Award should KJ Parker win. That's very nice, but that's not a conflict of interest. Well, I, I, I think Parker has a good shot. I really do. Oh, I think, uh, he, actually, I think uh, absolutely, uh, I should say, he or she does. I think Parker does. Actually, okay, my pick? No, I think Kat Valenti's going to win. Um, okay. You think Liz Hand, right? I was, uh, yeah, Liz Hand has got a reasonably good chance, I think. Um, I would think it's probably between Elizabeth Hand and, and Kat Valenti. Could be. Could well be. And, ladies and gentlemen, the big one, as George R.R. R. Martin would call it, though, let's face it, the statuettes are all the same. Uh, I think it's going to be Joe Walton. I am, too. I was going to say, I was going to surprise you. I was going to shock you by undermining your prediction on predicting Joe Walton, but I think um, there's a sense that uh, it's, uh, there's a huge amount of affection for the book. There's a mm-hmm. huge amount of momentum for the book, if there is such a thing as momentum. Um, I'm Delighted to see Osama on the on the ballot yes. because it was not a widely uh, widely reviewed or widely recognized book. Nope. And then you've got the uh, the, the kind of uh, the, the the two huge best selling you know, yeah. gigantic monumental figures uh, with, with with Martin and King. And then kind of the dark horse is a novel I don't know is the Christopher Buell. Yeah, I don't novel. know it very well either. I mean, it may be the the judge's secret favorite. You don't know. But as my house is being destroyed in the background, Gary, you'll probably hear this banging and crashing. I can and, understand that. And young ladies who are being upset. Uh, so with that, I might wind the podcast up now but before it goes a bit I think, crazy. I think we should do this before we're overwhelmed with girls. I think that's true. Though it doesn't sound like a bad thing to me. I will see you next week on, All right, uh, on I will Thursday, see you. Actually, Wednesday evening maybe. Wednesday evening for a drink after your dinner. Wednesday evening after we get back from dinner, I will look for you in the hotel bar, hoping it's a really good bar because Okey-dokey. that's what makes a good convention. Okay. I'll talk to you then. All right. We'll see you next week, the week after that. Dear listeners, farewell. Go back. Okay. okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.